Luke 1, verses 1 through 11. First Timothy 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Lightning and thunder, salt and pepper, hot weather and swimming pools, the Washington Capitals and Stanley Cup trophy. There's some things in life that just go together. Other things, not so much. So when I was a newly married young man, I decided to treat my wife to a homemade rendition of one of her favorites, fried green tomatoes. I filled a pot with olive oil and put it on high heat. Uh, The only problem was once I dropped that first battered slice of green tomato into the oil, it burned and turned black instantly. Inedible. So I had enough common sense to know that the oil needed to be cooled down, right? Before I could try it again. So like any sane adult, I decided to just dilute some of that scalding hot oil with some cold tap water. Seemed sensical enough. I'm pleased to report that by God's grace, the apartment we lived in at the time is still standing in Sterling, Virginia, near Dulles Airport. You can go see it this afternoon. It's there. (laughs) But I learned my lesson. Oil and water don't go together. They never will. Well, this morning, we are entering a 12-week study in the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. So here at Loudoun Valley, our practice is to take a book of the Bible and walk through it section by section to hear what God might teach us through his word. And this summer, Lord willing, we'll plan to do that in 12 studies here in 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his protege in the faith, Timothy. It's unclear as to exactly when this letter was written. Some place it in about Acts 18 to 20, in the middle of Paul's ministry in that book. Others think that after the book of Acts concluded, Paul was released from prison and had more missionary journeys during which this was written, uh, then being imprisoned again and eventually uh, beheaded for the cause of Christ. But whatever the case is, this is clearly a letter, an epistle, 
written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor of a young church in the city of Ephesus, the wealthy, flourishing port city of Ephesus. It's the first of three letters in our New Testament that are called the pastoral epistles. Epistles meaning letters. Pastoral epistles meaning letters written specifically aimed at the pastoral guidance of the local church. So as we dig in, the question occurred to me as I was studying this week, why are we as a congregation studying a letter meant for pastors? Isn't that a bit like giving your kids a book on parenting? Well, in chapter 3 of this letter, which we'll get to, Lord willing, at some point, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he's giving instructions as to how the whole of the community of believers in a local church are to live together. What could be more relevant to us? This letter concerns how we as a church are to be ordered, organized, and taught. So it has everything to do with us. And as we dig into these first 11 verses that Stan has just read for us, we see right off the bat the reason Paul is addressing this letter to Timothy. There are false teachers in the church, folks undermining sound doctrine, and Timothy's got to do something about it. What? Well, with our time this morning, let's see overall that sound doctrine is always accompanied by something else. Just like salt comes with pepper and lightning comes with thunder, gospel doctrine will always lead to gospel living. Those are going to be our two points this morning, gospel doctrine and gospel living. So first, gospel doctrine. There in verse 1, Paul introduces himself as an apostle, especially set apart office in the early church, commissioned directly and sent by Jesus to teach and bring up the early church. So as an apostle, Paul has a unique authority that he sets out immediately by saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's been commanded by God our Savior. And there in verse 3, he tells Timothy what apparently he's told him before. Timothy must stick around in Ephesus. He's greatly needed there. Paul urges him to remain. Why? So that he might charge certain persons, you know who you are, not to teach any different doctrine. The word doctrine refers to teaching or belief. It's, it's our church's teaching and, and beliefs about God and his word, about who God is and who we are. And it's apparent here that Paul Timothy has already been taught reliable, trustworthy doctrine, presumably by Paul and others. And it's doctrine rooted in the truth of Christ. But now there are those in the Ephesian church who would seek to undermine that doctrine. How? Verse 3. They might teach against it. They might publicly proclaim against it. But that's not all. Look ahead in verse 4. Paul says they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. Okay, what's that all about? Well, good news, we don't exactly know. Paul doesn't give us a lot of insight as to what exactly this teaching is. He describes it a lot, but what exactly is it? He does give us clues. There's hints in other, others of his writings, uh, so we can begin to piece it together just a bit. So it seems like this false teaching has something to do with Jewish belief 
and the interpretation of the Old Testament. So it's possible that in Titus chapter 1, Paul is talking about this exact same thing when he tells Titus to warn the people who live in Crete not to, quote, devote themselves to Jewish myths. And then down here in verse 6 in our text, he says that these teachers have veered off course and strayed from the truth. What? Desiring to be teachers of the law. The law here refers to the law given by Moses to Israel in the Old Testament. So think Ten Commandments. Think the moral code of the law of Moses. Not as much a ceremony or civil laws of the Old Testament of Leviticus and, and uh, Exodus, but even more so the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the way his people must live. It's a law that had been designed by God for the good of his people. And throughout church history, Christians have often tried to understand the moral law of God in three basic uses. So three ways that's legitimate to use this moral law of God. First, this law will show us our sin and lead us to Christ. Right? Paul talks about this in others of his letters. It's a schoolmaster. It's a tutor. It helps us show our weaknesses so we can go to Christ. Second, this law restrains the wickedness of sinful people. So it shows boundaries by which we see that we're transgressing those boundaries. You think the Ten Commandments put in courtrooms, right? It's shown this is right and this is wrong. And third, the moral law shows God's will for Christians. All right, the law no longer condemns us. The law is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. But now as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ and have been set free from sin and condemnation, we can actually obey the law. Not to receive God's pleasure, but just out of love for him. It directs us as Christians. Three uses of the law. But these teachers here are twisting the teaching of the law. And they're doing so by speculating about old myths and lists and genealogies, and they're distracting the church from the sound doctrine that the law provides, leading us to the gospel and the doctrine of the gospel. Church, false teaching won't only happen in the public proclamation of the Bible when, when a pastor becomes unfaithful. That can happen. If it does, fire me immediately. Sometimes it will happen in smaller, less glamorous ways unhelpful curiosity into tangents and matters of no importance and making them the main thing. Paul warns of these speculations and he urges Timothy to hold fast to the gospel, to keep the main thing, the main thing. Paul says these certain people, you know who you are, have been preoccupied with speculation instead of what? The stewardship from God that's by faith. That word stewardship has been translated and interpreted various ways, but it, it seems to mean the good order God has designed for his church. So the false teachers are not only saying things that are wrong, they're disrupting the order of the church that God has designed. Now they're not only presenting unhelpful ideas, they're disturbing the unity of the church. And it always goes that way, doesn't it? Bad doctrine, bad teaching always comes with collateral damage. So it doesn't just bring conversation that seems pointless. That's harmful enough. It brings division. 
Instead of safeguarding the gospel, these teachers are obscuring the gospel by running after distractions that divide the church. In verses 6 through 11, we see Paul expand on these wannabe teachers of the law, and he tells Timothy how they're messing up the teaching of the law. I love how there in verse 7 he says, they don't understand what they're saying or the stuff they're talking about. Double whammy, right? They, they don't understand the subject matter, and they just have no clue how to teach the subject matter. They're confident, and they're wrong. And I think it's a good reminder for us as a church that just if someone's confident, just because someone seems confident doesn't mean they're right. And just because someone constantly second-guesses themselves doesn't mean they're wrong. What matters is what's true, regardless of our emotions and feelings. Phil Riken writes about these teachers. There is a dangerous combination here, arrogance and ignorance. Brothers and sisters, may it never be said of us that we're both ignorant and arrogant. I'm okay for ignorant at times. I certainly am. But may we never be ignorant and unteachable. We must be confident in the gospel, of course. But as we come to God's word and as we're discipled by others, may we always be teachable and moldable so that we might become more like Christ. Okay, so why are these teachers wrong? Paul's getting to it. So what does the right teaching of the law look like? Verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Paul then goes on to list a litany of sins. And these sins echo the Ten Commandments. They start out with, just like the Ten Commandments start out with, sins against God, unholiness, ungodliness. And then it turns to sins against other people, just like the, old te- the Ten Commandments do. Dishonoring parents, murder, sexual morality, enslavement, which is a form of theft, right? It seems like the Ten Commandments are in view here as Paul points us to the moral instruction of the law of Moses. Now, scholars have various viewpoints as to exactly the point Paul is making about how the law should be applied, but it, it seems like, first and foremost, he's saying that the law should be applied in that restraint of evil use. You know, it's for lawbreakers. It's for those who are not holding back their wickedness. It's meant to curb that. That's one of its uses. That's one of its right uses. Don't use it to just kind of have mystical speculation or curiosity or to take genealogies and twist them and try to find a magic hidden meaning. No, the law is there to teach us what's right and what's wrong. Use it that way. But ultimately, church, what I want us to take away from this is that most beautiful use of the law. Because when you look at that list, there's some that you might be like, oh, I'm, I, I haven't done that. But every one of us finds us in that list. We're all sinners, and the law shows us that, but it can't save us. Sure, it can convict us, it can show us our sin, can make us miserable as we look at it and see our, the mirror of ourselves and how we really are. It can show us what's wrong so that we're not as bad as we might be otherwise by the common grace of God. But ultimately, the law is no help at all. Its only job is as a prosecutor to make the case for our guilt in the face of God and sentence us to death. 
That's it. The law can't change us. The law is powerless to save. It's powerless to transform. It can't make us love each other. It can't make us love God. It can only show us what's wrong. Which is a good service. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law shows us our sin. That's its, perhaps its most beautiful use. Because in doing so, it leads us to see we need a savior. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the Bible teaches that God has given you an innate understanding of what's right and what's wrong, and you suppress that. You have a knowledge that in your sin, you're guilty before him, but you choose to ignore that. We all have. We all have not honored him or worshipped him as he designed us to do. And the judgment for that is death and separation from him, but Praise God, that's not the end of the story. We'll see that next week as Paul dives into this wonderful exposition of the gospel. Now, the law, which seems to be the end of us, can prove to be the beginning. Because God did not leave us in sin under the law, but he sent his son under that same law to keep it perfectly, to be the perfect, obedient man, to live like we were designed to live. And then he died. He took God's wrath on the cross for the sin of everyone who would turn to him in faith. If you turn to him, you'll be saved. Imagine you're given a quiz to take. And you're told if you ace that quiz, you will be perfect and accepted by God. But you don't even try. You find out you can't try. And so instead, you take the quiz and you tear it in pieces and you throw it in God's face. That's our sin. Each one of us has done that. And so each one of us is left with no hope. We can't please God and we don't even want to. We'd rather live for ourselves. That's where the law leaves us and where the gospel picks up. It says that what Christ did on the cross was take that quiz, ace it in our place, and then take our ripped up, tattered exam, submit it, and take all the punishment it deserved. All our failure, all our sin, all our rebellion. What a savior, as we sang earlier. Taking our judgment and giving us his perfect score. All of his grace. Friend, won't you turn to him today? Won't you stop trying to please him on your own and accept his free invitation of utter acceptance based on the merits of Christ? All of us desire acceptance. All of us will strive and do crazy things to be accepted by the people we love. You know, in Christ, you're accepted by the only one whose opinion matters. Come to him for rest. Stop striving on your own. That's true doctrine. And Paul charges Timothy not to forsake the gospel, but to protect it at all costs. So some might construct new ideas from the law. They must be stopped. Paul is saying, Timothy, stand firm in the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you've heard from me and which I've been given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm in that. Cling to gospel doctrine. 
And he's telling us the same thing this morning. We must do the same. But that's not all I want us to see in these opening verses. That's kind of the main point, but let's move on to a second point and finish by thinking about gospel living. Look there in verse 5. So Paul has told Timothy there are these people who are teaching different doctrine, but then he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So in the middle of this charge to uphold correct doctrine and sound theology, Paul tells Timothy that the aim of all of it is what? Love. I think Paul lost his train of thought because we're talking about theology here. We're talking about boring stuff. What's got love got to do with this? Isn't doctrine an obstacle to love and unity? Doesn't love really mean overlooking differences of theology and just accepting everyone as is? Doesn't love equal tolerance? Won't careful talk about theology divide us as a church? Won't it show us how we differ and therefore show us the opposite of unity? No. Bobby Jameson says it this way, based on this text. Sound doctrine leads to sound faith, sound hearts, and sound consciences. And these become the fountain from which flows an entire life that is pleasing to God. The aim of sound doctrine is sound living. See, sound doctrine about who God is and who we are deep discussion about the gospel and all its intricate truths will not inhibit our unity as a church. It will fuel our unity as a church. Gospel doctrine, if we truly embrace it, will always lead us to greater love and care and sacrifice for one another. It must. Those two will always go together. If your doctrine remains up here, and never reaches your heart or your hands, you don't truly believe it at all. Gospel doctrine will always lead to gospel living. Paul's aim isn't love that comes from a wishy-washy, whatever-makes-you-tick heart, a careless, seared conscience, and a shaky, unstable faith. It's love that comes from a heart that's been made pure by the gospel. A heart that comes from a a love that comes from a a good conscience, a love that comes from a faith that is sincere and strong and true. I don't know about you, but give me that love. Give me that love. That love will last. That love has a foundation. That love has an anchor so the ship won't drift to sea. That love has a foundation so its walls won't collapse at the first wind of false teaching. That love is based on the truth of Christ, the Son of God who, out of love, laid aside all his privileges to take on the form of a servant and die for you and me. That's true doctrine, and that's true love. To your church family, we might be told at times that we'll be more alive and more successful as a young church if we relax our hard takes from Scripture on things like sexuality 
and sin and hell. We might be told we'll be more fruitful if we stop harping on judgment and sin and the cross. But church, if we want to be a community of believers that shows genuine, consistent love, service, sacrifice, and care, if we want to truly know Christ as a community, we need to stick to sound doctrine. There's no other way. We must resist silly speculations and needless controversy. We must find our unity in the truth of Jesus Christ. Only then will we be truly loving. Not only within our church, but to those around us. Only then will we be able to offer visitors in our doors and those in our community something more than just another club. but Something truly life-giving. Something truly true. So, dear church, what might we be missing? I'm so grateful for our commitment to sound doctrine, but consider how we might grow in response to this charge to Timothy. I wonder, how might we disconnect gospel doctrine from our life? Well, it, it may look like confirming our beliefs with our mouths, but never evidencing those beliefs in our lives. It may look like playing it good on the outside, but never really giving ourselves fully over to Christ for real. So Christian, examine yourself. Are you living in light of the gospel? I know my heart, and I need to ask myself the same question. In the quiet of your home, or the noise of your home, in your bedroom, in your heart? Are you seeking to live like you're a child of God? Repenting of sin and pursuing Christ. Our doctrine as a church doesn't stop with our statement of faith. Our doctrine confirms itself in the way we live our lives. One writer puts it like this. Doctrine isn't just for a statement of faith hidden away on a back page of a church website. It's for sermons, small groups, personal conversations, prayers, songs, and more. Sound doctrine should course through our church's veins and nourish every aspect of our lives together. So, brother, sister, all the things you say you believe about God, are you living like those things are true? So you might say, yeah, for sure, God is holy. Love that song, holy, holy, holy. So are you living like it? Are you living in repentance? Are you seeing the, the heinousness of sin and running from it and running to God through Christ for mercy and grace? You might say, yeah, I love the doctrine that God is sovereign. I love that you guys hit that hard. I'm big on that. Great. Are you taking risks for his glory? Trusting he will care for you? Are you depending on him for your future and resting in his control of your life? 
If your doctrine is not leading you to transformed living, to devoting yourself to God, to striving for holiness in Christ, then your doctrine is nothing more than a label you wear, a hat you wear with the logo of a sports team you never intend to root for, a mere accessory for your latest outfit, empty, meaningless. Sound doctrine will show itself in gospel obedience and gospel living. So do you see how sound doctrine is not only opposed in a local church when someone develops an aberrant theology and rejects the the divinity of Christ or the Trinity or creation. Sound doctrine in a church can also manifest itself perhaps more insidiously and dangerously when the church that ascribes to it doesn't live like it's true. So what must we do to protect sound doctrine here at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church? We must hold fast to the doctrine of the gospel and live like we believe it. And when our hearts stray, we must ask for help. We must ask the Holy Spirit to awaken us and apply the gospel to our hearts so that we might live in keeping with it. The great thing is the Holy Spirit's so happy to answer that prayer. You don't have to say, Lord willing, Holy Spirit, make the gospel real in my life. Just ask him for it. Ray Ortland writes, The test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. If a church's gospel culture has been lost or was never built, the only remedy is found at the feet of Christ. As a church, let's pray that God protects us from ever neglecting our gospel doctrine. Let's ask him to help us never neglect our gospel life together as a church. Let's pray and sing to remember these truths and to preach them to one another. Let's pray now, and then let's close with a song that announces this doctrine, this gospel truth that Jesus has died, Jesus has given us new life, and praise him, he's coming again. Let's pray. Lord, we need you so much. We can pride ourselves in remaining theologically sound and doctrinally responsible. But we don't want to stop there. We want your gospel to trickle down into every, mo- every moment and every part of our lives to make us as a church radically transformed, battling sin, loving each other, persevering until heaven. And we look to you for that. Holy Spirit, there's no way we can do this without your aid. So come, pray, as we prayed earlier, change us and lead us to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.